All right, good morning. Um, I hope you have been enjoying the Revelation series. I know I am. Uh, and Revelation is a bit of a different book, as you can imagine, if you've been here. Um, hopefully this, is, this has been helpful. So I was thinking about, like, how do, we, how do I describe what we're going to be looking at this morning? Uh, and so I was just thinking about when, when we watch a movie, right, we're not surprised when the scene changes quickly. When here you're dealing with the family, and then, you know, over here there's a guy who's uh, drinking too much, and then he gets in his, gets in his car, and he, and he puts the uh, keys in, and it goes back to the family, and it goes back to the guy who's driving when, when, he, when he shouldn't be, and it's kind of building up to this, this clash and this, and this conflict. Um, we're not surprised when we watch a movie and you leave the uh, broader narrative and, and, and zoom in and create a character sketch with a, one of the major or um, supporting characters. Or when the uh, main storyline is, is interrupted by a particular conflict that then drives the rest of the storyline. Um, or when, when a parallel stories within a movie are, are, are compared to one another and they, and they build toward a climax. This is natural every time we, we watch a movie. But we don't typically read our Bibles like that um, because most of the Bible is not written like that. But Revelation is. And so that is the nature of Revelation. One of my favorite quotes in studying, Derek Thomas said, if, um, you know, Matthew 16, 18, where Christ says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If that is the picture, Revelation is the movie. And so that's what we're going through, in, in, um, especially in, in, in our section. Because as the Holy Spirit leads John through the most epic saga in history, he uses vivid imagery and he uses graphic detail. He, he zooms in and out. He pans from one scene to the next, revealing what the church is engaged in. Remember, this is a letter written to first century churches in Rome facing persecution. And so this has a particular encouragement and a particular perspective for them, and we're drawing out of that. Um, so with that movie theme, um, parental guidance is suggested in this, this sermon this morning in a lot of these, uh, these uh, topics, because uh, we're going to deal with some ugly and direct uh, concepts. Um, but we should not sanitize this from our children, because everything we're going to look at this morning is is being thrown in our faces and forced down our throats from an early age. And so if you don't talk to your child about the great prostitute, she will be talking to them for you. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning because her influence is everywhere. Um, also, because we've laid so much groundwork up to this point, we've spent a lot of time in, in the Old Testament. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time dealing with the details of the book, so we won't have as much of that today. More of what we're going to be doing today is uh, seeing how all the book has been building up to this point, um, and we're going to look at a lot of the, uh, the uh, parallels. So this is going to be a lens to understand the, the book, so there will not be as many Old Testament references uh, because we, we've kind of dealt with those a lot. I will be referring to some. Um, so we're going to be dealing with chapters 17 through 19. I'm going to read... Chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth had committed sexual immorality. 
and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a a, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on, the, on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth. But it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war with the lamb. And the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify your name this morning. Great and awesome you are. High and lifted up. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. Who could ever plumb your depths? You have no end, no beginning. You have no master. And all of creation serves you. Lord, if we got what we deserve, we would never know you. We would never be able to draw near to you. But because of your son, because of the lamb slain for our sins, because our Lord and our king became our sacrifice, we can draw near to you. We can approach you and we can approach you boldly because the throne that is judgment for the rest of the world is grace for the saints. Lord, we praise you for your grace, and we praise you for your spirit who inspired your word. That we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the world in which we live in and understand it how you see it. And have clarity and wisdom at the wickedness that we walk in from day to day, but have hope and assurance that we will walk with you forever because we are conquerors through Christ. Lord, would your church be encouraged this morning? Would the saints be built up and not overwhelmed with the influence of Babylon, but find their hope in the return of Christ and his kingdom forever and ever? Anything that bears the mark of the beast, would you drive them away? Anyone who worships the great prostitute, would you remove them from our midst? Remove those from all your faithful churches. Prune and refine your, your body 
Lord, we need your protection because the wolves desire to come in and devour us. And if there's anyone here this morning who is enticed by this prostitute, by the self-indulgence and the sexual immorality and the excess and the greed and the pride, Lord, would you make them miserable in it? Would they see that it is empty and it is lifeless and it only leads to destruction? Would you turn their hearts to Jesus Christ, that they would see him and rejoice with us when we say, hallelujah. Christ, our hope in life and death. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right. So uh, remember our movie analogy. When we get into verse 1 of chapter 17, where it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, We just finished the bowls last week. Chapter 16 ends the, the, the seventh bowl. So we already get a clue here that what the angel's doing, the angel who holds the, the, the bowls, who, who is telling about the, the, the pouring out of God's wrath, we're going to kind of zoom in here. We're going to take some time and camp out specifically in the sixth and seventh bowls. In the sixth bowl, we see these, these three creatures being of one mouth, hence of, of one mind. Um, the uh, the uh, beast and the, the, the false prophet. And then, uh, and then they're gearing up for war. And then in the uh, seventh bowl, we see this uh, war coming and the enemies falling and Babylon itself falling. So that is the, the context of where we're going to lean into now. Um, so you may be asking your, yourself, all right, we spent half a chapter on one beast, half a chapter on the other beast. Uh, there's a lot of scenes going on here. Why are there two chapters on Babylon? Think about that. This is one aspect of the wickedness of the world. This is one of Satan's co-laborers, but we have two entire chapters. Remember what Babylon signifies, sexual perversion, sexual persuasion. This is a commentary on what is operating around the church every day. Um, because I have news for you. If you think it's a big deal in our time, if you think it's influential now, it was probably more so in John's day. You, if you live in 2023, you might think that's not possible. But the Greco-Roman world celebrated perversion publicly. Prostitution was not only legal, it was celebrated. It was, it, it was, it was commonplace. It happened in public. Self-indulgence in excess reigned supreme. Much of the Greco-Roman world made Las Vegas look tame. Their, uh, their uh, perversion was, was widespread. I didn't really understand this until we went to, to California. Um, the uh, Getty Museum is incredible out there. And so John Paul Getty is an you know, uh, oil tycoon. He was fascinated with, with history. So after he made all his money, traveled around the world, brought in all these, the, these artifacts. Um, and one of the things he did was he recreated the, the, the governor's palace from Pompeii to scale. It was amazing. And in it was only artifacts from the Roman Empire. It was a huge collection. And the stuff that they don't show you in history books, when Sri and I were walking through there, I was amazed at how many sexual symbols, I didn't, like, I didn't realize how many ways you could, um, you could depict certain acts. And this is like pottery, 
paintings. They had removed frescoes from walls. It was everywhere. They were a wicked and perverse people. And this is what the churches that John is writing to were facing. And so along with the persecution and the the false doctrine, she, this sexual immorality, is the greatest threat to the church. Now, the one beast, persecution, is is in your face. That one's easy to spot. False doctrine is even easier, is is also easy to spot because we have something to compare it to. But self-indulgence and sexual immorality, it is done behind closed doors. And it can easily creep in. You can slowly be desensitized, and it's, and it's pervasive. And so think of all of the New Testament warnings against it. Think of all of the, the, the pastors who've fallen victim. Not to mention how many people in, in, in how many churches admit to watching pornography, or like, like, like most of us, we've been desensitized to the shows and the movies we watch. Two of the seven churches, if you go back to chapter 2, this was an issue for them. Pergamum and Thyatira. Re- Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to, be, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that, what's, what's the false teaching leading to? So that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Thyatira. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And notice, it starts with, with, with teaching, but it leads to, to, to perversion or normalizing perversion. Who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. We are seeing this today everywhere. The... The marketing team for sexual immorality is on full blast, and many churches are, are, are picking up on it. Um, this, this very week, someone, uh, a, a pastor, Andy Stanley, who um, most of us would listen to, maybe not get uh, you know, thoroughly uh, educated by, but at least we would listen to and say, okay, he, he's, he's orthodox. A few years ago, he began by saying, well, we don't need to mention the Bible any, anymore, we can just talk about, um, you know, Jesus said, we're only going to look at the, uh, the red letters. And then he went from there that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because uh, this doesn't, you know, that, that uh, New Testament Christians, the Old Testament doesn't have any bearing on them. To this very week, they have a conference, what's the conference called? The Unconditional Conference, that they're hosting at their church, one of the largest churches in the country. What is the Unconditional Conference? The, the, the whole focus of the conference is so that parents of LGBTQ children can embrace their child's journey and love them along the way. This is an attack on on children. This is a conference for parents. In a a man who most people would not have thought much about listening to 10 years ago. This is the world we live in. This is always where it goes into, into perversion. So This is why we are leaning in here. This is why we spend so much time on it. Because I could give many, many more examples. That's just a blatant, very public one. Thanks for the heads up, David. Um, David told me that it was going on. So, all right, let's let's get into it. We'll move a little quicker than that, but I just kind of want to set up. Um, The other thing, too, 
we're going to be creating a, uh, a, a sketch here. So we're not going to get bogged down in the details, but the details are, are building. Like we said with, with the paintings, every little one of these strokes is kind of building up. And so let's, let's zoom in to one of the influences of uh, Satan in the world. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Now, why is she a great prostitute? What do prostitutes do? They, they allure you in, they draw you in for momentary pleasure at a price that can't satisfy. That's, a, that, that's who she is. And so um, she also is seated on many waters, meaning she's everywhere. Many people in many places are, are, are coming to her. She has influence all over the earth. And many kings have committed sexual immorality with her. And all the dwellers, and, and excuse me, and... Um, with the wine of sexual morality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So many waters, many kings, many peoples. Her reach is everywhere, but it begins with the authorities. As soon as you, you influence the influencers and the leaders, everyone else is going to follow. And they're not just sipping. They're not just dabbling. They're getting drunk. They are out of control. They are completely drowning their, their, their sorrows. They are, they are self-medicating. They are taking in all they they can. Now, again, when we you know, move through a book like, like Revelation, we have asked, um, are these symbols literal? If this was literal, this would be a very busy prostitute. But this is an imagery of sexual immorality and self-indulgence personified. If you want to know what this, this is like, it's like a prostitute who's everywhere. And she wants everyone to join her in her bed. And so we begin to learn more about her in verse, in verse 3, uh, which will be explained at the end of the chapter. So she, uh, he's carried away by the Spirit into a wilderness. Remember, the church in chapter 12 is, is brought into a wilderness. There, God prepared a place for them. He's nourishing them, but she also roams around there. So church, be aware. The same wilderness that's for your protection, there is a woman wandering around. And she's not alone. She is riding on a scarlet beast that is full of blasphemous names. She is brought in on blasphemy. That's who she rides on. They are working together. And this is not some poor woman. She's flashy. She is in your face. This woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned in gold and jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a gold bowl. She is rich. Why? Because sex sells and business is good. And she is, she is accumulating all these possessions and all these peoples for herself. And she carries a cup full of abominations, just like God has a cup of wrath, a bowl of wrath. She has a cup of abominations. She is, in fact, the mother of all abominations. Everything that is poured out into the world that is, that is wicked comes from a heart of self-indulgence and self-gratification. And on her forehead is written the name Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes. Remember, our forehead indicates who our allegiance is to. This is who she is. This is who she served. This is her identity. And she is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She is bloodthirsty because she works for Satan and Satan hates the church. She hates the church. Why is she doing all this? Because she wants you to follow her into death. She wants you to drink what, what she's pouring. 
This is just like our study in Proverbs. There is a call of two women in the world, one of, one of wisdom, the church of Christ, the woman who's in the wilderness, who is nourished by God, who is, who, is, who is patient and kind. She's not loud and wayward. And then there's Lady Folly, who's the prostitute, who is in your face, who is enticing you into her home with, with, with stolen wine and stolen bread. And she has her, all of her... Um, all of the uh, rose petals on, on, on her bed and the uh, perfume in the air, and she is creating the mood so that you can come in and die with her. That's what's going on in the world around us. And John is warning the churches, and we should be warned as well. And so as the uh, chapter progresses, this is one of the few places in Revelation where the uh, symbols are explained plainly. Um, and it helps us to interpret here and in the rest of the book but then when we see things like kings and horns and waters throughout the rest of Scripture, uh, it helps us in interpretation. And so John sees this, and John's trying to figure this all out, and John's amazed. But the angel says, why do you marvel? I'm going to tell you the mystery. The woman and the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carried you, I'm going to explain this to you. Um, here's the, the first thing that we need to see. Uh, eight through ten are kind of the, the explanation here. Notice that it's a beast who was, who is, who is about to come out. Um, and also, he, uh, in the, at the end of verse 8, he w- it was, it is not, and it is to come. So what, what does that mean? That's similar language to Christ. So what this is, this is telling us is that it's not one beast in one time. There was, there was the beast and the prostitute in John's day. And throughout history, in Luther's day, and in our day, uh, uh, William Hendrickson says, the, the form changes, but the essence stays the same. Throughout all history, these, these influences are in the culture. Don't be surprised. But also don't forget, Satan is not omnipresent. Neither are any demons omnipresent. But the spirit is, is pervasive. This woman riding the beast is still riding the beast. And she is riding throughout the world and throughout the culture. What John sees in, in, in Rome, we see today. But we must have eyes to see, because look right in the middle of verse 8. Um, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. If you are not elect, you will, you will, you will follow him. Your, your heart will be drawn after. This is amazing. I get to fulfill all my desires, not the people who were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Satan desires to, we'll get into this more next week, but desires to lead astray the elect, but he can't. But everyone else is fair game. And so kind of moving on here, uh, verse 9, this calls for a mind of of wisdom. Remember, all the uh, sevens here. Sevens are complete. Sevens are fullness. Um, so, and he says, there are the seven heads are seven mountains. We already looked at that mountains are synonymous with, with nations. Um, there are also seven kings. So in these nations will be, will be kings. There, there are seven mountains. It's, it's, um, it's present tense. They have not yet come. It's uh, future. But notice what is most important for us, only a little while. And um, at the end of 12, they will reign for one hour. We should not be surprised that there are many wicked nations. 
We should not be surprised that there are many kings in these nations. We should also remember that they only have power for a little while, that these things rise up and then they fall. Don't be surprised. Their reign will be short. And don't forget, verse 13, that they all come from the same source. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. But we don't stop there. Verse 14 is the theme verse for this entire book. They will make war on the Lamb. Guaranteed. It's coming. It's already here. But just as certain, and the Lamb will conquer them. If you can sum up Revelation in one line, that's it. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. That's what we walk away with. That is our hope. That is our encouragement. Because our lamb, he's Lord of lords. He's king of kings. We'll see in a moment that this, this great prostitute, she calls herself a queen. And she has a throne for a time. They may control kings, but those kings rise up and they die. They may raise kingdoms and nations, but they rise up and they die. But our king lasts forever. His kingdom lasts forever. So don't get discouraged. Don't get distracted by all these temporary kingdoms because they rise and fall like sandcastles. And the Lord at any time brings waves up on the beach and washes them off. But this is the reality. This is where we live. And so as we go on, the waters where the prostitute is seated are people and multitude of nations. But then something interesting happens. Verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Isn't that just like what happens in the world? We know that shallow sensuality, it, will, it, it spreads fast, but it never lasts. The prostitute and the beast are quite literally in bed together. And when he gets tired of her, he tosses her out naked and ashamed. She is, she is used up and she ends up with nothing. This is the path of every sin. Every sin promises desire, promises fulfillment, promises us to, be, um, to, to feel whole and to feel gratified. And it offers momentary pleasure that we get drunk on. But as soon as the hangover wears off, we're empty again. We feel used, we feel naked, we feel exposed, like a woman who gives herself up for a man and then is tossed out into the street. This is the path of sin. Prostitute puts herself in bed with the beast, and he leaves her outside in the street, where she will soon be destroyed. And even in this, verse 17, God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose, so that his purposes can be fulfilled. Even in this, God is sovereign. Even in this, even this, this great city, this great woman who has dominion over all the earth, she has dominion for a time because God has granted it to her. Leaving the world without excuse and bringing in the rest of the saints. All right, so now getting into chapter 18, we're going to zoom in even further. Okay, if you think we, we hadn't dealt with Babylon enough, we're going to show you the influence of Babylon. And the, the comparison to our day is just staggering. 
Because Babylon, you know, if, if you know your, your, your Bible, it was a uh, nation that enslaved and oppressed the uh, people of God. They were full of self-indulgence and sexual immorality. They are the namesake of the world system that is trying to do the same thing. And they go all the way back to Babel. What was the issue at Babel? At Babel, it was all mankind coming together to say, we can be like God if we build ourselves up. And God destroyed their little, their little castle, scrabbled their, their, their languages, threw them off into different places. But this, this nation always has, has personified the um, indulgence and exaltation of man. We got a little glimpse of this in chapter 14, where one of the angels looking forward to the consummation, 14.8, another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. John sees, sees it at a distance. Now we're going to see it up close. The uh, seventh bowl, chapter 16, verse 19, um, mentions Babylon specifically. That great city was split into three parts, and the cities and nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now we get to lean into why are we mentioning Babylon so much? Because her influence is persuasive. And the first thing we see in chapter 18, verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This is a direct quotation from uh, Isaiah, by the way. But the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And who is this, this Babylon? Babylon is also female. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. This is the great prostitute. This, this nation is personified in one woman. Listen to this description. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. This is the nature of nations. This is what happens to every great nation in history. They become powerful. They become greedy, and in their, their greed, excess increases, self-indulgence increases, and with self-indulgence comes perversion, and after perversion comes self-destruction. Every single one of them. It happened in Babel. It happened in Egypt. It happened in Philistia. It happened in Assyria. It happened in Babylon. It happened in Persia. It happened in Greece. It happened in Rome. Any of this sound familiar? Power, greed, self-indulgence, perversion, sexual immorality, and then destruction. This is nothing new. It's the trajectory of every nation that is founded on man, that exalts man. And so why go into such detail? Why the warning? Verse 4, another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Why? This is a letter that the church needs to hear. Come out of her. Some of the church are flirting with her. Some of the church are walking alongside her. This was prophesied in Jeremiah 51. Um, this is our sole Old Testament reference, and I think it's important. Because God has been promising this ever since the days of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51, 6 through 10. Look at the parallels. 
There was a physical nation who was doing this then. Now, what we see in, in Revelation is the world system who's doing the exact same thing. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let every one of you uh, save his life. This is 51.6. Be not cut off um, in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hands, making all the earth drunken, and the nations drank of her wine. Therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon is fallen and being broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let go each of you to his own country. For her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. The shadow of that happened when Israel came out of Babylon. The substance of that happened when Babylon, all Babylon, is destroyed. And Israel rejoices, true Zion rejoices in her fall. And so then the rest of chapter 18 is kind of like the villain sketch in the movie. Why, you ever watch a movie and you're like, why do they show how wicked and twisted this guy is? Why do we spend so much time on all his evil? Because if you know how evil he is, you begin to root against him. You don't root against someone you don't, you, you don't know. And so this character sketch is, is built up so that we see how evil she is. Because, because um, in our, our immaturity and our naivete, we wouldn't normally rejoice when someone's destroyed. Like, oh, we don't want them to die. This is what the world does, right? Oh, no, they wouldn't die. They're such a good person. But when you see how evil Babylon is, when you see how far from the Lord wickedness is, you will cheer when she goes down. So let's look. Um, we'll go quickly through this uh, character sketch. First thing I want you to see is in verse 7. She glorified herself and lived in luxury. Okay, this is the impetus of everything that's, that's coming after. There are three categories here. The kings, the merchants, and the shipmasters. All of the uh, who's who of, of, of that society. The uh, leaders of, of countries, the leaders of industry, and those who uh, engage in international commerce, who brought the nations together, they're all doing business with her. They all committed sexual immorality with her. They're all in league with her. And again, remember like I said, sex sells. Business is good. Think about all the industries in our day. Think about all the, 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 the billions of dollars not just in pornography, but in, but in other industries where, where just suggestion and uh, subtlety. I mean, scroll through, you know, scroll through uh, Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime. How many of those shows, the, 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 the main premise is something sexual? Again and again and again and again. Business is good, and everyone is engaging in it. This is true in every age. Rulers and leaders and companies worship sex and self-indulgence. Verses 11 through 14, she has great wealth and excess. Everything from gold and silver and clothing to slaves. 17 through 19, there's, there's international trade. Uh, the shipmasters and sailors, uh, they all trade on, on the sea. They become rich by her wealth. Even music, art, and industry. I want you to read this and think about our day. Jump down to verse 22. 
Look at all of her influences and the sounds of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters. Six times no more is stated here. Will be heard no more. What about today's music industry? Everything driven by by, uh, either insinuation or outright perversion. And uh, craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. So those who make things, the sound of a mill, those who produce resources will be heard in you no more. The light of the lamp will shine in you no more. You won't have light or influence anymore. And here's the kicker. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you anymore. The church is engaging with her. The church is doing business with her. The saints are drawn in as well. She truly lives on many waters. But as great as an influence as she has, it will be no more, no more, no more, dead, dead, dead. And do you think all these people who devote themselves to her will repent when she's defeated? What do each one of them do? They mourn. They mourn because verse 14 tells us their souls long after her. They don't repent when when she's destroyed. Their kingdom of sand has crumbled. And they are left alone when the prostitute that they serve is destroyed. And they are brokenhearted because this is who they are. This is their identity. Church, don't be like them. Church, come out of her. Have nothing to do with her because she will be destroyed, guaranteed. There is one little verse in the middle for the church, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. Rejoice, saints. Rejoice in heaven. Judgment is coming, and it's on behalf of my saints. Remember earlier in chapter 6, God listens to and hears the prayers of his people. How long, O Lord? I will bring out judgment because I love you. This is the nature of the church age, as we saw in chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This is the nature of the day that we live in, the church age. There is rejoicing with the saints, and we join with the the choruses in heaven. And there is weeping and wailing on earth because this is all it is, and it is coming crashing down. So how comforting is this? when John writes to seven churches who live in this wicked Roman Empire, who are not only flashing their sexual immorality, but are coming at them and persecuting them and torturing them and and killing them. How comforting is this for us when the wickedness that we see around us should not be a surprise to us? It's explained, it's expected, but it's only here for a short time. All right, let's get into chapter 19. love chapter 19. Because again, back in our movie analogy, at the same time, over here there is, there is, there is wailing and there is, and there is mourning because their, their hero, their namesake has fallen. And at the same time, it, it pans to worship in heaven to contrast the two. 
Babylon has fallen. And what happens in heaven when Babylon falls? Babylon's influence is vast and, and terrible, but it is not a lasting influence. What will last is her torment. Look here. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and, and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth in her immortality. And he has avenged on her the blood of the saints. And they cry out again, hallelujah, the smoke of her, from her goes up forever and ever. We saw last week, oh, everything God does is just. God is righteous in everything that he does. And you wouldn't think he was righteous if it just said, hey, there's this uh, prostitute out there and God kills her. It's like, man, that's a little harsh. But when you see how pervasive she is, how influential she is, how even the church is being led astray, God is a jealous God. And not only are they brought in, but it leads to their, to their death and to their blood. And so God takes vengeance for those who she has killed. But his worship and his glory and his kingdom goes on forever and ever. So the great multitude worships. We're going back to chapter 4. The, uh, the 24 elders representing all the, the uh, saints um, from the uh, 12 tribes to the 12 uh, apostles and the, and the four living creatures representing all of, all of creation. They all fell down to worship. Everyone worships God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. This is why we read this earlier, to prep ourselves. As, as Brett says, this is a day of awesome worship, of praise beyond praise because God's enemies are thrown at his feet and we stand in his glory forever. And they say, praise God, all you his servants, all you who fear him. You know what's interesting? This additional vision of triumphant worship in heaven. You know how many of them there are in the book of Revelation? Want to guess? Seven. Seven instances and visions of heavenly worship. This is the seventh. What should that tell us? That the worship is, is building toward its consummation. This is the, the, the final victory shout as all of the great multitude have been brought in. And so what also should that tell us? We're a people of hope and assurance because our God has promised us victory. Our God would be victorious for the sake of his own name, and that would be enough. But he's victorious because he loves us, and he no longer wants us to be tormented by the enemies. We sing because our God conquers. And this continues to build. Then I heard what seems, verse 6, uh, to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. This description builds because the same description is given in chapter 7. Chapter 7, 9 and 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. I love that Brett said earlier, we should not read this like we're reading the phone book. We're not droning on. If you don't like praising the Lord at the top of your lungs, you're not going to like heaven. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We see the same thing in chapter 14. 
Chapter 14, 2 and 3, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. A voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This great multitude, you know what's happening here, I think? This is when the last of the elect come in. When the last of the, the uh, conversion of the uh, people of God who were numbered in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world come together, and there is this great rejoicing because we're all here. This is the, 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 the consummation. This is what the bride has been waiting for. This is her wedding night. This is the, uh, the uh, full consummation of God's plan of, of redemption. Everyone comes together, this, this, this loud voice from every tongue, tribe, and nation. For the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is why it's one of Jesus' favorite analogies for the kingdom of God. Because if you lived in that day, the wedding feast was a seven-day celebration. And it was the biggest celebration that you would go to. For days, you were drinking and you were dancing and you were singing and you were celebrating. And you were giving gifts because there's a union of a man and a woman. How much more the union of Christ and his bride. How much more all of eternity. All the saints, everyone putting their, their, their hope in Christ, everyone who bears the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb lays down his life, not just for a people, but for his bride. To prepare a bride worthy for himself. To take an unworthy, unlovable, ugly woman and make her pure and spotless and righteous because he pours out his righteousness on her. Yes, the cross guarantees us our salvation, but it also guarantees us our consummation. It guarantees us this, this wedding feast, this great day of celebration and, and rejoicing. Because God's grand plan of redemption has found its completion in the lamb and the bride. This is the, this is the worship of all ages coming to its fullness And it's incredible. And then in verse 9, the angel says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed indeed. Blessed are those like the ten virgins. The five virgins. Um, five of them fell asleep, but five of them got oil. and they, they, they waited in anticipation for the bridegroom to come in. They wanted to go into the feast. They heard the general call and listened to the effectual call and were brought in and everyone else was shut out. Blessed indeed. Um, this is, there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Yes, seven. This is directly in the middle of them. There are three before and three after. Blessed are the one who reads the book. Blessed are the one who has not stained their garments. Blessed is the one who stays awake. All of this leading up to blessed are they who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the beautiful consummation of everything God has been doing in redemptive history. And this is a call for the church to stay awake. Uh, look at Luke chapter 12. Because we anticipate this, because we look forward to this, we don't sleep, we don't, we don't slumber, we don't get comfortable here. As good as it is here, 
You may have some, some moments where you're around family and you're, and you're just enjoying everything God's given you. It is exponentially greater. The greatest thing you ever taste here, the greatest thing you ever experience here, the, 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 the deepest love you ever have here, the most hope and encouragement you ever have here will be magnified a thousand times a thousand for eternity. This is why we look forward to this, this day, and this is why, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 35, this is why we stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once, and when he comes and knocks, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, and this is amazing, that he will dress himself for service, and he will have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And in the day of glory, when we should worship him, he will invite us to his table. He will serve us a feast he will make his bride comfortable and make her feel welcome. So if he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Brothers and sisters, be awake. And if you are sitting here this morning thinking, oh, I can wait, I can repent tomorrow, Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Thieves don't break in when you're ready sitting on the front porch. They break in when you're sleeping and when you least expect it. Turn to him. Trust in him. Because there is a great feast. Our hope is everlasting life with him. This is the, the, the hope and anticipation for the world. Or excuse me, for the church. And now for the world, the end of the chapter here. So... All the saints have been brought in. The meal is, is, is prepared. Redemption is done. There's only one thing left. The enemies must be defeated. Now that the saints are gone, the old will, 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 will pass away. The new will come. The, the uh, consummation picture builds. This lamb of the wedding is now the lion. Verse 11, heavens open up and there is one faithful and true riding on a white horse to judge and make war. Next time the world sees Christ, it won't be secretly. It will be suddenly. And this picture builds and he won't be happy. Because he will pour out the full measure of his wrath on everyone who stands in opposition to him. Everyone who does not bear his name on their forehead. And we get this, the a picture of the, of the Son of Man from chapter 1. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one else knows. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name which he has called is the Word of God. When Christ left this earth the first time, he was covered in his own blood. When he returns, he'll be covered in the blood of his enemies. Because his blood was shed, because his righteousness applied, he can come back and deal with his enemies because his people are secure. And this, this, this wrath, the uh, fullness, verse 15, 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Son of Man who comes back to defeat his enemies because he has already redeemed his bride. Jesus told us in um, Matthew 13, we've looked at this analogy several times, um, and you can, you can look it up. I'm just going to explain it. So this is how Jesus describes the end of the age. I'm the son of man. I'm sowing seed out in the world. And the angels of heaven are saying, why don't we just pluck up the weeds that are growing among the seeds? No, not yet, because my seeds are more important. Let my seeds grow. Let them both grow side by side. But there's a day of harvest coming, and the angels come with the sickles. And they begin to cut out all the weeds. They pull up the wheat. They bring them in for the harvest. They bring them in for the feast. But the weeds, the Son of Man destroys them. He comes to set them on fire, and that fire is never quenched, and it burns forever and ever. This is the Son of Man that we are waiting for. This is the Son of Man that we stay awake for. Because if you're in Christ... You were you were you were gathered into nice neat bundles, and you were brought into the house, and you were in joys at the, at the feast. But if you are not in Christ, if your faith is in anything else but Him, you will be destroyed forever and ever and ever. And then one more time, we we pan and zoom into these angels now. This is the angels from Matthew 13. They're going out in this great harvest. Verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he cried to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. Which birds do you think he's talking about? The vultures and the crows and the eagles? Because all of God's enemies are going to be destroyed. There is a great feast going on in heaven. We are eating the best food and drinking the best wine you will ever have. And on earth, the birds are gorging themselves on the bodies of his enemies. There is the supper of the Lamb and there is the supper of God. These two are contrasted against one another. Get ready. You're going to eat the blood of my enemies because they are preparing to make war. We saw this in chapter 16. We'll see it again in chapter 20. Babylon is defeated. Now the beast, the persecutor, is defeated, the uh, beast of the sea. And the uh, false prophet, the beast of the land, will be defeated. Babylon has already fallen, but these two, they are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest are slain, and all the birds gorged on their flesh. This is what the world has to look forward to. This is what any kingdom not built on Christ is facing. This is what the houses of sand that all the world builds up for themselves are, are facing. But brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, this is not what we're facing. So, in conclusion, we are blessed. Blessed indeed. I want to look at these um, Beatitudes real quick. Come with me. Chapter 1. Blessed, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Next, chapter 14, verse 13. 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now verse 16, or excuse me, chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus himself saying, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. We saw here in chapter 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Chapter 22, verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. And finally, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the, sec- and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Brothers and sisters, we are blessed indeed in Christ our Savior. The Lamb who has bought us as his bride. So don't be surprised when you see the influence of the great prostitute. Don't be surprised when you see the wickedness of the world. Don't be surprised when nations and leaders and industries and even churches worship her. The saints are crying, how long? But the Lord has numbered her days. And we are not a people without hope. The saints are blessed indeed. Christ is our bridegroom, our victorious lamb. And we are conquerors in him. And so this is a table that reminds us that we are blessed indeed. And this is a table that is a foretaste of that great feast that we will take with him one day. So I'll give you a few moments to prepare your minds and hearts for the table. And we'll take it together.